welcome. I am our resident musical color commentator, Leah. Kent is taking the week off to make space for this very special segment of Music Madness, Overtime. In our final minutes of the game, we are going to divulge some titling, possibly salacious, stories that have been told about our favorite four artists. They may be true, or a rumor, or some silly gossip that comes along with being in the limelight. Whatever they are, I hope that we have some fun. So let's begin. First, we start with our forerunner, and now finalist, in the health reasons bracket, Freddie Mercury. Freddie is known for being a showman, a vocalist, and in general, a rock god. That kind of status led him to being acquainted with like people. He was known to have friendships with people like Boy George, Elton John, Michael Jackson, David Bowie, and George Michael, to name a few. However, our story involves someone with more of a crown than queen, Princess Diana. This story came forth in 2013 in Cleo Rocco's memoir. Let's set the scene. The day started with four friends hanging out. Freddie, Kenny Everett, Cleo, and Princess Di. Kenny and Cleo were comedians who worked together in a sketch comedy show, The Kenny Everett Show, of which Princess Di was a fan and had struck up a friendship with the two. And Kenny and Freddie had met when Freddie appeared on a radio program that Kenny used to host, and the two had been friends since. The group of four decided to day drink on some champagne and somehow turned to the TV. The group finally settled on some reruns of the Golden Girls, but if that wasn't entertaining enough, they decided to watch the show, muted, and create their own racy dialogue for the actors. As the night progressed, the group decided they wanted to go out dancing at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, the iconic London gay club. There was one issue. Princess Di was, well, Princess Di. Freddie Mercury may have been a recognizable face, but Di's was a face of the people. Since her marriage to Charles, she was followed by paparazzi everywhere she went, people just hoping to catch a glimpse of her. And here they were, suggesting to bring her out into the public while she was arguably the most recognizable person in the world. There were concerns by the group, but Freddie pushed them to the side, saying, Go on, let the girl have some fun. Everett offered the princess outfit he'd planned on wearing that night, including an army jacket, dark aviator sunglasses, and a leather cap. The group somehow decided she might pass for an eccentrically dressed gay male model. But then came the moment of truth. They took her out into the public. Fortunately, they were hiding her in plain sight. All of them were known in their own right, and especially Freddie, so they were able to hide her within their own stardom. They entered the bar, all of them too sure that she clearly looked like Princess Di. But then they went up to the bar. And she was able to order a beer and a white wine. And with that, they felt like they'd won. Freddie Mercury and his friends had successfully brought Princess Diana to a gay bar without the knowledge of anyone else. Now, is there any truth in this story? Who knows? There's no photos from this occurrence, and Cleo is the only living figure from the story. So this may have to be one that stays in just the realm of possibility. Next, we move on to Otis Redding who is our last remaining member of the Freak Accident Group. I am first going to bring up a bit of gossip for debate. Sitting on the Dock of the Bay is potentially his most famous song. It became the first posthumously number one hit, the second of which was actually Me and Bobby McGee by Janis Joplin. 
Otis recorded it just three days before he died. The song was written with Steve Cropper. And to this day, Cropper has sparked a rumor of much debate. Redding notoriously ad-libbed parts of his songs, and this one was no different. Cropper left space at the end of the song for Otis to add extra vocals as he saw fit. Only, Otis forgot what he wanted to sing and decided to whistle instead. This was to be merely a placeholder to be fixed at a later date. But there were no later dates, and the song was released with the whistling. Now, Otis, he did do multiple takes of the song, and in all of them, he whistled. So, it may have been more intentional than Cropper says. For me, though, I could not imagine that song any other way, so I'm glad that they left the whistling in. Now on to our main story for Otis. There's not a ton of information out there about Otis, and the rumors and gossip about him hold very little potential truth. So rather than slander his name with the possibilities of affairs, love children, and or mob ties, I'm going to retell a true story. Otis moved to Macon, Georgia when he was two. Macon is home to the Douglas Theater, which was the place to be for black entertainment during the early 20th century. It turned into an auditorium during the 1940s and was a contributor as to why Macon has been called the birthplace of Southern rock. It helped start the careers of Little Richard, James Brown, and Otis Redding. It is where eventually Otis would perform on the Teenage Party, which not only helped his career take off, but was also where he met his wife. Before all of that, the Douglas Theater hosted a weekly talent contest. Redding was a teenager and looking to help his family earn extra income. He was already earning $6 a week performing gospel for a local radio station when he learned of the talent contest. The contest offered a $5 prize to the winner. So Otis entered, and unsurprisingly, he won. So he decided, if I won once, maybe I could do it twice. The next week, he entered the contest again, and of course, he won. So could he do it a third time? It turned out, of course, he could. He participated in 15 weeks of the contest and won every single time. He was then prohibited from ever entering the contest again. The story seems to be pretty true and is documented in multiple places, including Otis's own website. It just turns out Otis is just too good. Now we're going to move on to Mr. Jimi Hendrix. First, I'm going to try and bury a pretty prominent piece of Jimmy gossip. The rumor is that Jimmy would put tablets of acid in his headband before taking the stage. A step up in the rumor is that he would cut his forehead to have it absorb more quickly into his bloodstream. Now, it is very well noted that Jimmy liked his acid, but this way of ingestion is not documented anywhere, and there is nearly no reason that he would need to do this. He could simply take the drug orally before he entered the stage just as easily. It would be a lot of needless steps for not many gains. Now on to his actual story. We're going to need to set the scene a little bit. Jimi Hendrix and The Experience had released the singles Hey Joe and Stonefire in December 1966. And in March 1967, they had released Purple Haze, which had found itself number three in the UK Top 100. Also, at the end of March, Jimmy played a show in which he set his guitar on fire for the first time, which caused quite a stir in the press. So, on April 9th, 1967, 
and experience were in Liverpool for a concert. Noel and Jimmy headed into a pub between sets to order a drink. They had picked an off-the-path bar as to evade their numerous fans and have time to actually get a drink. However, before they could even order, the bartender said, Sorry, mates, we can't serve your sort in here. We got rules. Jimmy had lived for long periods of time in the southern USA. He had met the prejudice of the South, with the separate bathrooms and drinking fountains, and in general, any sort of segregation that they could fathom. He performed on the Chitlin Circuit, which was a network of venues who welcomed R&B performers and whose audiences were primarily African-American during a time when Black performers were not allowed to play at white establishments. The circuit weaved its way through the South, offering very little opportunities for the artists between venues. Finding food, lodging, or any general needs was often hard, and these tours took a great deal of planning. So Jimmy was well aware of what his race meant during that time period. But that was mainly in the United States. And since moving to the UK, he had not found the same racial discrimination. He'd found the Britons place much more prejudice on class than color of skin. And as an American, he actually found himself to be accepted in most places, even if he was more of a novelty or a curiosity than anything else. So Noel and Jimmy tried a few more times to make an order, but their attempts were ignored. Finally, Jimmy could not take it anymore. And he asked the bartender, is it because I'm black? And the bartender replied, no, for God's sakes, man. Didn't you see the sign on the door? And he left the two of them again. Noel went to look at the sign and immediately saw what the problem was. He started laughing in a way that didn't seem like it was going to be stopping. At this point, it should be noted, Jimmy and Noel had on purple scarves around their neck and had frizzy hair extending out from their head. Noel had on bright purple bell-bottoms, and Jimmy was wearing tight pants made of red wine velvet. Jimmy also wore a puffy, frilly pirate shirt under a military jacket from the days of the British Empire, which he found at a thrift store. This also, at other points in his life, was a point of contention, and is also the jacket that he wore at the infamous Monterey Pop Festival. Noel went back to inform Jimmy of the issue, but found Jimmy and the bartender in a heated argument. The bartender continued to reference the sign on the door and was unwilling to budge on the bar stance on the subject. It was then Noel informed Jimmy that there were two signs on the door. The first was a flyer for the circus that was in town, and the second was a warning from the bar. No clowns allowed. Jimmy paused before before Noel continued. There's a circus up the street, and this chap doesn't want any clowns in here. He thinks we're clowns. Jimmy let that sink in before he started to smile. This story is documented in Jimi Hendrix's biography, Room Full of Mirrors. So I'm going to also put this one in the realm of possibility. It might be true. Now on to our last, but certainly not least, artist in the violent death category, Kurt Cobain. Kurt's life read kind of like a rumor and gossip story and almost did not sound real. So we're going to a deeper dive into his greatest mystery, his death. The official story is that Kurt took his own life on or about April 5th, 1994. Another very prominent story is that he was killed by one of the following. Either bad cops, drug dealers, ex-friends, record industry execs, Courtney Love, or any combination thereof. We are going to focus on Courtney Love. Here's some of the buildup. 
In early March 1994, Kurt OD'd on painkillers in Rome, and after Kurt passed, Courtney claimed this was his first suicide attempt. Journalists then reached out to the doctor who treated him while he was in Rome, who stated that he did not believe it looked like a suicide attempt. Kurt's friends also brought up the question, why were they not told of the attempt at the time? Didn't they have been put on suicide watch for their friend? In mid-March 1994, Love called the police, stating Kurt was suicidal and that he had locked himself in a room with a shotgun. However, when the police got there, they reported that Kurt insisted he was not suicidal and had locked himself in a room with a gun tied from Love. On March 25, 1994, Courtney Love arranged an intervention for Kurt because of his drug use, which ultimately led him to entering a detox facility on March 30, 1994. The next day, Kurt went outside to smoke a cigarette. He scaled a six-foot wall and left the facility. From there, he went to the airport and flew home to Seattle. Upon arriving in Seattle, he more or less went missing. People reported sightings of him, but nothing more concrete than that. So on April 4th, his mom filed a missing persons report. Most of his friends and family were looking for him and could not seem to track him down. Brittany Love hired a private investigator to try and find him. Ironically, she hired Tom Grant, who ended up being the number one believer in the conspiracy theory that Love was involved in the murder of Kurt Cobain. So who ultimately found him? Gary Smith, an electrician. He arrived at Kurt's home on April 8th to install a security system and found Kurt dead. Now, the home seems like a pretty obvious place to look when you can't seem to track down a loved one, right? The coroner, who was also a personal friend of Courtney Love's, believed that Kurt had been dead for about three days before he was found. This was revealed without a toxicology report, and he allowed Kurt's body to be cremated before that report came back. When the toxicology report showed was that Kurt was high on heroin and Valium, the dose of heroin believed to be lethal or near lethal, which leads people to call into question his ability to pull a trigger. People also call into question his wound, saying that it was not consistent with other wounds believed to have been caused in the same way. Other oddities came out as the investigation progressed. When the shotgun was finally run for prints in May 1994, it was not found to have any legible prints, and in general, there was a lack of prints at the scene, including the pen suspected to have been used to write his suicide note, which wasn't run for prints until 1997. Speaking of the note, it is suspected to actually have been his retirement announcement. Nowhere does it talk of him seeking death. The part that led people to believe it might be a suicide note was suspected to have been added later, or potentially by somebody else. There were a lot of rumors, also, that Kurt was going to leave Courtney, and due to a prenup, she would be left with nothing. So she sought a different way out of the marriage by hiring a hitman, a man by the name of El Duce claimed that Love offered him $50,000 to kill Cobain, and even passed a lie detector test given by one of the lead polygraphists at the time with that claim. He says that while he did not do it, he knows who did. Alan. El Duce passed away in 1997, so we may never know who Alan is, but maybe he could help get Courtney off the hook. Now, as to the truth of this story... There is so much information or non-information about this out there. So I think all of this should be taken with a grain of salt and probably will have to stay in the realm of falsehood. Well, and that's it. 
Here are some stories, tales, and truths about our top four. I hope you enjoyed this segment of Music Madness Overtime. Kent will be back next week with your regularly scheduled programming, and we will get to find out the winner of this season of Music Madness. Will it be one of the greatest guitar players of all time, or one of the greatest vocalists of all time? I know who I voted for, and I can't wait to find out the results. And as Kent would say, don't forget, you may not like the results, but you can't argue with the process. Except, I think you can if you enter the Discord server. There we tend to chat and argue all the time. So I hope to see you there. And with that, this is Leah, signing out.